Hello, this is Kevin McMullen, Senior Pastor of Independence Christian Center. Thanks for joining us as we break the bread of life today. Our prayer is that your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is strengthened by this word. God bless you. Continuing our series tonight on training for the glory. And let's, you know, I want everybody to... Uh, has anybody besides me made the decision that the world around us is just going cuckoo? Yes. I mean, you know, now, uh, and, you know, I'm saying that and it sounds glib, but it's actually not. Uh, when Jesus began preaching in Matthew uh, chapter four, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, we've been using the Sermon on the Mount as our as our golden text for this series. Uh, he started in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and that's what John the Baptist was saying. They were both saying, Repent. When in Acts chapter 3, Peter preached his mes message and they said, Brethren, what shall we do? And he said, Repent. That's the first word out of his mouth to answer. To repent means to change the way you believe. Change the way you behave. Literally it means, metanoeo means to change your mind, to change your thinking, to change your thought paradigms. And how many of you know that when you change the way you, you think, it will change the way you perceive? And we and, and Jesus, then when he went up on the mountain, his disciple, he saw the throngs coming. And he so he went up on the mountain, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And that gave us that gives us the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Plateau over in Luke is a different thing, but he but although very similar. And he began to teach them. And to, so that their thinking would be straightened out because he was getting ready to commission them. He was getting ready to walk it out in front of them and he wanted them to understand. I mean, you know that you can see something and you think you know what you're seeing and then it turns out you didn't understand it at all. And so what he's doing is he's cluing them in on uh, what he's uh, about God and about what they should believe and what is righteousness. In fact, in Matthew chapter six and verse 33, which I believe is the linchpin of the entire Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what is righteousness? What is right? What is upright? What is true? What is, uh, you know, what is authentic? What is, what is real? You know, um, those things. And so he begins to teach them and he gives them the Beatitudes. Blessed are, you know, the poor in spirit for, you know, they, they shall uh, inherit the land. Blessed are the and we're, we've been dealing with Matthew chapter five and verse eight last three weeks. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see, they shall perceive God. And what we talked the last time we were together about uh, heart and soul. And we talked about how what the heart is, how that it is not what um, you know how in certain charismatic circles there's um, it is you know it's considered the human spirit that the, the human spirit is the is the heart but that we can prove by the scripture that that's not entirely true that there is overlap but it's not the same now 
This evening, I'm going to be using a new tool, and we'll, we haven't, I haven't done this before. It saves me from having to go to the, uh, to the board, and so, um, and this is my first time out with it, but can, you can read it, right? We have the spirit, and we have the soul, and where the spirit and the soul overlap, and where they interface, your soul, animals have souls, but your soul is not the soul of an animal, it says over in Ecclesiastes, that the breath of a beast, meaning the soul of the beast, descends into the earth. When the beast dies, when, the, when an animal dies, its soul just dissipates it because it's based on its physical life. Your soul, my soul, are, number one, they're sentient. We are self-aware. Number two, we are God-aware. And number three, our, and that's because, I should say, our souls find their ground of being in our spirits. We are spirit. God is a spirit. We are spirits made in his image. All right. And so the heart is the nexus, if you want to call it that. It is the overlap between the human spirit and the human soul. This is where we find both logic, which would be here in our, um, let me see here. We need to, oops. Bring it back. And again, I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, used this a whole lot. But over here is where we think. And that needs to be, we'll, we'll make it wider. Think, feel, and choose. All right? That's our thoughts, our emotions, and our volition. All right? Over here is where the Holy Spirit lives. He lives within our spirit. All right. Now, there is, what is the firewall between your spirit and the outside world? The firewall is the renewed mind. Where the mind, oops, the, the mind, well look here, I got an eraser, see, so I can go like this. And so, don't you just love technology? Yeah, when it works. All right, so here we have think, feel, and choose the Holy Spirit. All right, the con uh, and I've heard it said, well, your spirit can't be corrupted, but that's not what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, we talked about this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Now, I want you to see that what happens there is that what, you know when we uh, things are coming into the outside, stimuli is coming in from the outside through our eyes, through our ears, etc., into our soulish parts, and that means it gets into the heart. It can't otherwise, and that means it'll go right on into the spirit as well. Now we are dependent. On, that, on our spirit for communication back this direction. That is called the conscience. That is your conscience. In fact, the word science there, it's a, it's a compound word. It's, that is from the Latin word for knowledge. C-O-N, if anybody that speaks Spanish knows, con, that means with. And so our conscience is a knowledge that rides with our sense, our sense knowledge with our mind. And that is, how many of you know, how many of you have heard the voice of your conscience talking to you? 
Okay. If you haven't, you need to come down here and get saved because you're in deeper trouble than you realize. All right. So, and then, and so when we, if we, if we let, if we don't repent, if we don't walk in holiness, what does it say there? Uh, again, in Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting, completing holiness in the fear, the reverential awe, the the the, the bowing before God. All right, perfecting holiness. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their what? Conscience. So there we see that the mind and the conscience are not the same thing. Here's the mind over here. Uh, think, feel, and choose. Come on, talk to me, goose. All right, here we go. Think, feel, and choose. And here's the conscience over here, which is part of the spirit. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul says to his young protege, This I command you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good what? Conscience, which some have rejected the good conscience, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. As I have been saying for weeks, that if we play around with carnality and we let, go back to the purple here, where's, where's my purple? Um, the, the, again, this is kind of the first time I'm using this. And so it gets in here and starts, all this stuff gets in here and starts to clutter and, and, and defile and, 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 and create problems. And that's why we need the washing of the water of the word. We need Jesus to wash our feet. All right. Now, having said all of that, you think this tool's worth keeping? Okay. All right. You know, and then I can draw animals and. Well, anyway, the um, we'll we'll go ahead and where's my button? There it is. We'll go ahead and, and dispense with that for now. All right. Now I want to talk to the, the thing that has absolutely penetrated the, con, the, the conscience and the spirit of the Western world and is, has made massive inroads into the Western church. And it's causing people to be unable to perceive God. That's what, you know, to, to detect him, to know, to hear his voice and to know what he's saying. Because God is speaking. He is broadcasting. He is speaking from heaven. All right. And it has been said, and you've heard me use this, this, uh, this word. It's, we live in a postmodern age. Postmodernism is taught in our universities and has been for the, about the last, well, really, for, for a, 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 an entire generation. And postmodernism is now, it's not just blooming it is bearing great fruit you know and when I say great I don't mean good I mean lots of fruit and it influences our government it's influencing our courts it's influencing our education system it has invaded our culture our literature our art and yes it has made its way into emerging church among other things theology postmodernism teaches that reality cannot be known with certainty. 
Let me say that again. That reality, what is real and what is true, cannot be known with certainty. Each one of us constructs a model of reality in our own mind. It's called our worldview. All right? And when I say this is true, the skeptic can say, well, you know, who says your version of reality is correct? My version of truth is as good, just as good as yours. That's where you hear things like, well, that's true for you, but not for me. If something is true, it's true for everybody. You know, if we're standing in the door of an airplane and we're getting ready to get out, you know, let's just say I'm one of my favorite planes uh, uh, from which to jump was a Casa 212. It's a twin engine aircraft that's like a shrunk down C-130 and the, the, has a tailgate that drops down. And jumping out of a tailgate of an aircraft is more fun than the law should allow. And if we're all standing there hanging on like this and the gates open and we're looking down and it's 14,000 feet to the, like this and we're being told it's three minutes and we look around and there's a guy standing there without a, without a parachute. And you go, where's your rig? And he'll go, what? Because it's loud. Where's your rig? I don't need one. Dude, you're going to bounce. That's true for you, but not for me. <laughs> here the last week, uh, Power Knight has been over here across the street uh, setting up poles, running in feeder lines to the new library building over there. And you can see linemen up there, you know, when they started pulling that wire and started connected, they're wearing those gloves that get tested on a regular basis to make sure they do not. Because if they're handling 480, you know, you know the, the primary or whatever that is up there, you know, you, you want those gloves to be absolutely, you know, have high integrity, you know. But so here's the... You know, here's the, you know, the, 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 the electrician, the lead electrician's on, on, in the bucket. And then and the new guy gets in with him and he pushes the button down. Thing starts up like this and he looks over. Where are your gloves? Oh, I don't need gloves. Dude, we're going to be handling 480 today. You need gloves. Well, that's true for you, but not for me. You're going to fry. You know, electricity doesn't care what you think. Gravity does not care what you think. Now, we'll think that way when it comes to physical things. But when it comes to spiritual things, suddenly we get real fuzzy because we would really like, we would really like for things to be the way we want them to be. We want the world to conform to, you know. And, you know, reality in postmodernist thought Reality becomes what I want it to be, what I think, what you feel. That's what's real. All right. And postmodernism rejects authority, religious or otherwise. Because if I'm walking in postmodernism, I, if I say what I feel, that's what's real. I have installed myself as the ultimate judge of what is true. How many of you follow me here? We are surrounded by this. We see it in government. We see it in the court system. And we definitely see it in, the, in, in our education system. 
We definitely see people making judgments about who they are and what they are, you know, irrespective of any physical evidence to the contrary. And it crosses this rejection of authority crosses all spectrum of authority, not just religious. All right. We have uh, 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 Ruth Bader Ginsburg, our Supreme Court justice, who recently uh, passed, well, not too recently, but a while, uh, some time back, said that we should put, uh, we, we, that as our, our, our highest courts should consider international law in interpreting the Constitution. What they're doing is they're saying, well, you know, it, it goes, it, the Constitution becomes a living document. Well, that's no, you know, some people say, well, that's, that's, that didn't write. Well, so is the reinterpretation of Scripture. We shouldn't do that either. The church has, we stand on the shoulders of giants, saints. And, you know, an into, we're in a time when people are taking the scriptures and they're saying, oh, that doesn't make, that's no longer true. Or that's no longer true. And it makes people nervous when you talk about things like that because we all want to go along to get along. But the fact is that is the oldest lie literally in the book. Because when the serpent presented himself before Eve, and we see it here in Genesis 3.1, now the serpent, and it wasn't a snake. It was Nechash. It was, a, it was, it was uh, we believe it was probably Lucifer. A, a being of indescribable beauty. We think of reptiles as being evil. You know, the snake. But did you know that God thinks reptiles are beautiful? He made them. Furthermore, how many of you have ever heard the term seraphim? Seraphs. You know what a seraph is? It's a serpent. Literally a fire serpent. There are Elohim. There are mighty, mighty angels, apparently including throne guardians who have reptilian uh, features about them. Pregnant pause. Okay. So are you sure that's in the Bible? I am positive. Where it says the fire serpents came out and started biting the people and they lifted the serpent up on the, the Nahushtan, the thing like that. The word is seraphs. There were seraphim that were coming out and biting them. All right. Well, what we'll get, you know, and, and so it, we'll go back to Genesis 3 1 here. Now, the serpent, the Nahash, was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made, Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Now, you'll see in brackets there the word really. I have added that because that adds the sense of what he's saying. Did God really say that? You shall not surely die. The father, or act not the father, but the, the son, the word who walked with them, spoke truth to them and said, in the day you eat of that tree, dying you shall die. That is reality. That is truth. And here is the enemy to challenge what God had said and to try to twist it and to try to convince us, ah, that's not right. That's not real. 
And we'll be and we've been told that the things, you know, what righteousness is now. Like, oh, that's just, you know, a bunch of, you know, Moses and and and, all you know, it's like, you know, uh, shrimp, you know, was outlawed because, you know, in the in, under the food laws in the Old Testament, shrimp, well, you couldn't eat shrimp. They'd be in trouble over at Red Lobster, you know, shrimp, scampi, you know, those things. You couldn't eat them. Because they were, they, you know, if you go to the food laws, they were outlawed like that. But today we understand that shrimp's okay. Well, Jesus did declare all foods clean. All right. There was a reason for that law. But then they will also say that whether it's homosexuality or whether it's monogamy or whatever it is that was, uh, that was the, the, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, Moses specifically said, no, this is not to do that or this is the way to do it. That, you know, it's just one other thing where the Bible is a living document. We are progressing and we know those things are are. are never really were true, or maybe they were true for them, but they're not true for that for now. That is an open invitation for the enemy to come in and hold high carnival in our life. The rejection of the authority of Scripture is the rejection of the truth itself. And I assure you, nobody will stand before the Father and say, and on that day, or before Jesus, on that day and say, I didn't know. Because they do. We have a whole group of humanity, a mass of humanity that is completely deceived. It has gotten in them and it has cluttered up. It has caused and their conscience will allow them to do any number of things. I've got good news for you about that. And that as we pray for them, that Jesus said that when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I assure you, there are people out there that you and I will never be able to talk out of their lifestyle, talk out of their belief system. But God. How many of you have ever seen somebody that if you would have, they would have come up to you and say, of all the people you know who are, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it is, who are the people that you would say are the least eligible or least possible candidates for salvation that you know? And you could think of a couple people going, if that person gets saved, I'll be shocked. And then you're shocked because that person actually did get born again. I've got some people in my past that I didn't think there was any way. No way. They are way too far gone. And yet, they, they did come to Jesus. God has a way. Everybody say amen. amen. All right. And John 16, verses 8 through 11. When he comes, I'm going to give you, I get just quoted that scripture, but I want, to, I, want, uh, I, want to, I want you to see it. When he comes, he will convict the world. For God so loved the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is one of the places where I have a bone to pick with our, with our I disagree with our uh, reformed brethren. Because they believe that, you know, that people who, that some people are destined and decreed to go to heaven. And others are destined and decreed to go to perdition. But if that's true, why would he be convicting the world? Amen. Concerning sin. When he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw how many men? All, all men unto me. Doesn't say they'll all come, but we will, they will, you know, and I'll get to another scripture that says the same thing in just a minute. All right. Um, concerning sin, 
Sin, righteousness, and judgment, verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Amen. And then there's Titus 2, verse 11, again from the New American Standard. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Notice it does not say saving all men. Those who teach a universalism, that is not scriptural, that is not biblical, where everybody's going to heaven, nobody's going to hell. You know, we have people like Rob Bell writing that book, Love Wins, among other things. And I've, they were, I've personally met two or three preachers who years ago when I knew them were solid, good, solid, biblical, scriptural preachers who have gone, made the trip over to a universalist gospel. The gospel didn't change. They did. The scripture didn't change. They did. And he says, for the grace of God, again, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. Who is instructing us? What is instructing us? What is the subject of the verb there, instructing? The subject is grace. Grace instructs us, teaches us trains us to deny, that is to reject ungodliness and worldly desires. It the grace of God teaches us, instructs us, trains us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's uh, holiness, isn't it? And would you say that's right? Sensible, righteous, godly? That's holiness. Hallelujah. Theologically, that's called provenient grace. That the grace of God is coming to everybody, no matter how messed up they are. The provenient grace of God. I've used this illustration. If uh, Mike and Jim could come up here, because we're doing this for the web. So, I, am, oh, uh, I have been born into the world. I'm a human being. And so, according to, Mike, if you'd stand over here. According to the... Wave to all the people out there all over the world. All right. Uh, if I'm, you know, uh, every one of us, one of the things well, I will agree with our Reformed brethren about is that we, uh, is depravity, total depravity. We are, we're tainted at every level. We're incapable of apprehending God without God's help. All right. Now, every one of us knows, and, and, and Jim here is perdition and the devil. And because, you know, because he got to be God last time. And, then, and, and, and Mike is, is, is the Holy Spirit and, and uh, working on Jesus' behalf. All right. And so here I am. And all of us know some people who are tilted just a little, just a little toward the bad side. How many of you know somebody who they're not a Christian, but they're really a good person. It's like you wouldn't have to go very far. But then others, we know other people who are. A little further away. Then we know some people who are whacked. I mean, they are, you know, eat up with it, as we'd say down in Texas. All right. So what happens is that no matter where you are on this, the provenient grace of God, the Holy Spirit, brings, down, puts, brings us to the place where we can decide. You see, if I'm like this, I can't perceive God. 
No matter what's going on. It, somebody, you know, the Holy Spirit could walk in the door wearing a bright red hat and a flashing Christmas tie powered by a 9-volt battery. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't know him. But with the provenient grace of God, he brings me to the place. Now, he doesn't force me because he doesn't take away my free will. But he holds me right here where now the decision I can genuinely and earnestly decide. I will not be able to stand before Jesus. Nobody will and say, I didn't know. I didn't have a chance because God made it clear. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Glad you're not members of the Screen Actors Guild. This is a hard issue. I have not digressed. Rejecting the truth of God to substitute my own truth, no matter how normalized it is by my culture, no matter how normalized it is by my family of origin, no matter how normalized it has been in my education, Sec, you know, secondary, post-secondary, you know, whatever, you know. Rejecting the truth of God for something that is not true corrupts my heart and makes it difficult. It uh, makes it difficult. It clouds my vision. We talked last week about the, uh, you know, the, the uh, windshield that was frosted over, you know, and trying to drive with a windshield that's frosted over hoping that the uh, <laughs> hoping that the that the that the defroster finally uh, gets it in all right because if i reject the truth what's left lies untruth all right that's what we see over in romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 25 although they knew god they neither glorified him as god nor gave thanks instead their thoughts Repent. Change your thinking. Right? Their thoughts. Are, am I, am I, I'm, I'm, you know, what is it? Foghorn Leghorn? Everybody know who Foghorn Ed? You know, the big chicken. I'm cutting. Are you bleeding there, son? All right. You know, although they, boy, right. Although they, knew, somebody knows him even better than I do. Knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Instead, their thoughts turned to worthless things. And their ignorant hearts were what? Darkened. Ah. Though claiming to be wise, they became idiots. Somebody said, well, no, it says fools. Idiot is a much lighter term than fool. Trust me. All right. They became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images that look like mortal human beings and birds and, and four-footed animals. This is from the ISV, International Standard Version, by the way. Four-footed animals and reptiles. For this reason, God gave them over to impurity to follow the lusts of their hearts and to dishonor their bodies with one another. They exchanged the, God's truth for a lie. And worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen and amen. What is that saying? Their hearts were darkened. Now the provenient grace of God is the only thing that can punch through that. And if you know people like that in your life, and I assure you, you do. In this world, in this day and age, prayer for that individual can penetrate that wall.
Amen. All right. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. For this reason, this is an eschatological, an end times passage. For this reason, God will send them upon them a deluding influence, so they will believe what is false. Why will he do that? Because they have rejected the truth, willfully rejected the truth, and are taking pleasure in sin. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their what? Understanding. Excluded from the life of God. That's a heavy word. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, again, that's a reference back to the hardness of the heart, have given themselves over to sensuality and for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. There is, he is a God, you know, so many people want God to be fuzzy. Because if God is fuzzy, I use the word amorphous, meaning without form. You know, because in the Greek word, you know, in the Greek world, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. All right. Form is what determined what it is. Well, we want God to be, you know, the unbelievers or, or uh, they want God to be, you know, um, amorphous. They want him to be just kind of a blob that they can shape and bend to there. That's idolatry. That's what it is. It's idolatry. And it's like you hear the person say, oh, I don't have any use for organized religion. That guy likes his religion disorganized, you know. Just do anything you want. I was reading uh, uh, an article the other day about the human immune system and what a beating it has taken with all the pharmacology and all of the things that have happened. And they were going through some things you could do. This, this immunologist was going through a list of things. I think it was like five things or maybe seven that you could do to beef up your immune system. And to my absolute jarring shock, the last thing was, go to church. Cultivate your spiritual life and, a spirit, and spiritual relationships because people who do that are demonstrably, measurably more healthy than people who do not. I'm like, what? I'm going to preach that. This is a pastor's dream. You know, drop out of church and you'll get sick. That is, I, no, he didn't say that. Okay. But yet, after the pandemic, a good 30 to 40% of the people who were regular in church and truly locked in just vanished. Got out of the habit of coming to church and never got back into it. And look where we are. Look where we are. By not confronting, by not speaking the truth in love, and it needs to be spoken in love. Kevin talked about healing, and I believe God wants to do that. I believe, there, I believe that people are going to start crying out to him. He's going to start reaching, and that's the way I interpreted it. And I was, we shared about that over lunch, and we talked about that, about how that 
people are going to be crying out to God. And God is going to be extending the healing hand. Even people that some of us would look and say, there is no way that person would ever come to Jesus. They're going to come to Jesus. But it's going to be because we pray. And God does what he says he's going to do. And we're going to be there to tell them the truth and to receive them. Everybody say amen. Because I'm here to tell you what's happening in the Western church with its accommodating uh, postmodernists where we'll accommodate anybody's view of anything just to, you know, make sure we get along with everybody is, you know, and accommodating every person's opinion, whether it matches scripture or not, that's going to end in tears. It already is. We've got the, one of the biggest denominations in the world right here, the United Methodist Church, fracturing. Over 6,000 churches have left. And they've got till the end of this year to get all of that, all that, that, that stuff done. You know, the fact of the matter it is, again, back to what Dr. Tuttle told me in my uh, historical theology class. If God is a triangle, he does not become a square, a rectangle, a circle, a heart, a rhombus, a trapezoid. Fill in your favorite geometric figure, an octagon, you know. What, you know, just because that's the way I think he should be. That's what I would be, it, it, with what I would be most comfortable. God's not worried about my comfort. He's worried about, he's not worried about anything, but he's, he's more concerned with my salvation. He wants me to be free. And that means believing the truth. All right. Jesus, again, was an Easterner. And in Matthew 6, 33, he, you know, here's the pivot point. Seek ye first the kingdom. Kingdoms have kings. There is a ruler. He is an absolute monarch. He doesn't have a parliament to which he answers. It's not a constitutional monarchy. It is an absolute monarchy. And Yahweh sits on the throne. And Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, sits at his right hand. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not trying to establish our own righteousness. And we don't even get to declare what is righteous and what isn't. He does that in his word. We follow that. How many of you with me here? And so he says, seek that as first priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things, everything we need will be added to us. All right. His value system, his way of living, his way of doing business. And it's in the scripture in the high priestly prayer. John 17, Jesus says to the father, sanctify them. That would be us. In truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. When I was a much younger man, there was a group that used to sing a song that went something like, any way you want it, that's the way you need it. Well, that's not true. That's music to our ears, but it's death to our hearts. Amen. Um, God created the physical universe with him absolutely incomprehensible precision. If the earth was any further away from the sun, it would be too cold to inhabit. If it was any closer, it would be too hot 
to inhabit. The moon has to be exactly where it's. Astronomers will tell you that all of the conditions for life are met here, and it so teeters. You know, it doesn't. It's not. It's stable. But what I'm saying is, it's it's so crucial. It is so precise. And our Father is holding everything exactly as it's supposed to be. You know, uh, we're, we were talking about electricity a little while ago. And that is that, you know, I've watched electricians work. And one of the things they'll do is they'll stick a, a probe in the socket. You know, and they'll look at, and then they'll look at their meter. And it'll tell them, number one, whether there's electricity there or not. That's a much better method than sticking your finger in. You know. You know. You know. I've got a little bit of time. I used to have a friend that uh, electricity didn't bother him. And he would be under. And I, you learned not to stand close to Fred when he was working on a car. Because he would be under the hood. And he'd take off one of the plug wires. Stick his little finger in it. And then reach over and grab a hold of you. Shock the daylights out of you. You know, didn't bother him. You know, so, you know, we just let old Fred work on He's in there. As long as you're outside of his reach, you know, because he could be ornery. You know, I remember the first time that I ever got a toast to that. How many of you remember the lawnmowers that had, you know, I'm old. Lawnmowers that had a Briggs and Stratton engine on them and it had a a spark plug sticking out of the front of it. And next to that spark plug was this metal thing. Like this. And what that was was the grounding thing. Where you put your foot on it. And you could short out. You touch the top of the spark plug. And the engine would stop running because of the spark plug. But if you didn't do it right. You could shock the living daylights out of yourself. Which I did on more than one occasion. I mean you just go. You know it's like. on. So you get a big stick. Me and electricity don't get along. As long as it stays where it's supposed to be, we're, we're okay. And see, that's just it. They flow. You, you, anybody ever looked at a schematic on, you know, for electronics? And you look at that and it's got all these resistors and capacitors and you know, diodes and all this stuff. And it's got all these little symbols and everything. You know, and I don't. I, I took one semester of elect, electronics in high school. And I don't remember much of it. Uh, and you see all that. Everything is designed to precisely. At, you know, all the resistors have a certain uh, certain value, and then the 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 voltages are supposed to be just right and everything. And we would you, nobody would say, ah, you just stick anything in there. It'll be okay. <laughs> You're going to make more than toast with that, I assure you. All right. And we, you know, we do not serve a touchy, feely God who can be, you know, he knows what brings life. And he knows what will bring death and destruction. Our God is not a formula, but he does give patterns. Hebrews 8 and 5. Look at this. Uh, who the Levitical priests serve, uh, you know, who, meaning the Levitical priests, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He's talking about the temple, right? 
Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. He said, Moses, I don't want you just slapping it together any old way. Everything here means something. I want you to put it together exactly as I showed you. Hebrews 9.1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations. See, we don't want rules. We want to eat at the outback. No rules, just right. Even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. So it did. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we begin reading with verse 8. This is again from the NAS. Look what God says to them. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. I know it's Moses, but it's still God. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which Yahweh your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which Yahweh your God will choose for his name to dwell there you shall bring all I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution of your hand and all your choice votive uh, offerings, which you will vow to Yahweh. In other words, God said, you know, you're not going to do this or through Moses. You're not going to do this. He didn't want all the high places. He didn't want everything, all the stuff under every green tree and all that kind of stuff. Jerusalem. When Solomon built the temple, the tabernacle was taken down. The furniture was moved into the temple. And that's where men were to worship. You remember the conversation, I believe it's John 8, or 4, between Jesus and the woman at the well, where she says, you people say Jerusalem. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. You people say Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. She's basically challenging him, which is true. And he says, woman, time's coming. And now is when neither in, in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He's saying you're wrong. But he said salvation is from the Jews. He didn't say becoming a Jew is salvation. He said salvation. In other words, God is coming. God is bringing salvation from the Jewish nation to even the Gentiles. David's tabernacle will be rebuilt and the nations will be will be brought in. Praise God. That's good preaching. Hallelujah. All right. The promised land is not. A lot of people say, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye. Anybody ever sing that one? To Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Oh, who will come and go with me? And that was supposed to be, we're going to cross the Jordan, we're going to die, and we're going to go to heaven. And that the promised land was a type of heaven. It is not a type of heaven. The promised land is a type of the blessing and the power of God and the reign of God and the produce of God in this life. Because in heaven, there are no giants to kill. There are no cities to take. How many of you follow me here? All right. And so with the promised land, you know, I mean, he says he wants it. What does he say? You are going to be blessed. I am going to slay all your enemies on every side. And I will tell you exactly how I want you to worship me. And just do that. You're going to love it. 
coming back to the Sermon on the Mount and beginning to wind this down. 113, Kilo Romeo has the field. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, what that same professor who talked about the triangle versus the square, he called this the sermon on the, the, the altar call for the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Now, that's New American Standard. The fact is the Greek says, does them. So I'm going to read it that way. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it didn't fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Doesn't say he's a fool. It says he's foolish. He came, he heard the word of God. Remember the house here is metaphor for your life. Build your life on the word, it'll stand. Build your life on something else, it will not. The rock is solid. The sand is not. Who built his house on the sand. I think of the foolish virgins. If you understand Old Testament theology, in which, of course, the readers of Matthew would, because Matthew was written to the Jews, and we're talking about Matthew chapter 25 now, which is a continuation of chapter 24, which is the great eschatological. He said the kingdom of heaven can be paired to ten virgins. Well, a virgin, does that mean that they, were, they had never you know, had a husband or had children. No, it meant they had never worshipped an idol. When you see the 144,000 virgins following Jesus in the Revelation, that isn't people who have been completely celibate all their lives. It means, and if you understand the, the affinity of uh, Revelation for Ezekiel, how that that 144,000 virgins are those who have never bowed their knee to Baal and their mouth has never kissed him. They are purely Yahweh's. They are purely God's. They're, they, they're Jesus, they belong to Jesus and they've, and they've only belonged to Jesus. All right. And those, of those 10 virgins, five of them, and so they're righteous. They are righteous. They're virgins. In other words, they're pure in the eyes of God. But five of them are foolish. They're not fools. They're foolish. They have failed to do the things they knew to do. They were not ready. All right, we come back here to Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, why, why am I even teaching this? Because people you know need to hear this. God will open the, top, the door for you to share it with them in love. And tell them, because they're not going to listen to me. Or any other preacher. Because postmodernist thought ignores people that are supposed authority figures. Right? Particularly if they're not going to tell me what I want to hear. So, but God will, put, there will, God will open doors as you pray. God will open doors for you to talk to people. And you can share the truth lovingly, but firmly. 
or they understand that drinking a can of Drano every day, spiritually, is not good for you. And that the, the, the wheels are coming off of your life, not because God hates you, but because you are sideways with the truth. You are, you know, we live in a universe that is well-ordered. The people in it aren't. So we come back to this guy. And the rain fell and the floods came. This is verse 25. Blew and slammed against that house and yet it didn't fall. For it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears, faith comes by. All right. Hears these words of mine but doesn't do them will be like a foolish man. He doesn't say the fool. He says the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Why would you build your house on the sand? Because it's quicker. It's easier. It's cheaper. Why go to all the trouble to dig deep, as it says, or I believe it's in Luke, and sink down the piers and do all of those things. We had a house in my neighborhood that the people that, you know, I don't know that much about construction, but I could tell something here wasn't right. The way this guy was building it. And in fact, one, a couple of people came up. I was on the board at the time when it was going up. And they said, have you been watching that? I said, yeah, I've seen it. They go, you think that guy knows what he's doing? I go, I don't know. Well, he didn't. Because the people that built the house eventually lost it. The bank had to take it. Another person bought it. You know, one of the, you know, these people that take and flip properties. And they lived there about five years or three or five years. And when I first came, you know, I came over to introduce myself when the, I was president of the board at the time. And he said, I want to show you something. And we went back and in the, one of the bathrooms, there was this tub there that what, the front part of the tub was flush up against the bathroom floor. And the back side of the tub had a gap between the, the, the bottom of the tub and the floor that was at least four inches. And the whole house was like that. In fact, the roof was beginning to sway in the middle like an old mare that had been ridden hard and put away wet. They had to put piers in. They had to do all kinds of crazy things to get the foundation of that house repaired and restored. And it cost a whole lot more money to do that than it would have to just have built it correctly to begin with. And that's what Jesus is saying. Everyone who hears these words of mine, it's foolish to do that. But it seems so easy. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. All right. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. And great was its fall. This could be partial obedience. You know, substitutionary sacrifices. You know, Cain gave what was available rather than his firstlings. And God said, no. And Cain got angry with God over it. And we know what happened. You know, that ended in tears. You know, I haven't digressed. We're talking about heart issues. Our relationship of our musicians would come. Our relationship with God is not about being comfortable Pleasing ourselves. We are calling sinners to repentance, not trying to accommodate them. 
Amen. We don't see that happening in Scripture because it ends in tears. We don't tell people it's okay because it's not. We love them. How many of you know what I'm saying? We love them. How many of you got somebody in your family that you love? You don't want to be around them, but you love them. Yeah. Amen. Again, Matthew 6 and 33. Everything that he says in verses 25 through 32 about, you know, you're not to worry about, you know, what you're going to eat. You're not to worry about what you're going to drink. You're not to worry about what you're going to wear. The nations of the earth seek to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, neither do they uh, reap, you know, nor gather into barns, you know. Consider the lilies of the field. All of those things. He said, will the Father not provide for, you know, that for you, O you of little faith? But seek ye first. But seek. He puts that but on there. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Notice it says seek, following him, chasing him. Our relationship with him is to be one of worship. We are worshipers. Worship is, by definition, an extravagant devotion. No price too high. No such thing as inconvenience. Nothing's below me. Nothing's beneath me. Remember for the Last Supper... Peter sent some disciples into town to set the meal up. One of the Gospels tells us it was Peter and John. I can see Jesus saying, Peter, I want you and John to go into town and set up the meal. I want you to get the stuff. I want you to set the table and all this stuff like this. And I can almost, you know, if I'd have been Peter, like, I'm the lead apostle. Lord, I'm supposed to be with you. Let's send Thad. Or Bart, or 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 Judah, or 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 or, or Matt. We'll, we'll send one of those guys. You know, a couple of those. They, they can go. I'm like, no, Peter. I want it done right. I want you to do it. But it's menial. Yeah. You think washing their feet was menial? Absolutely, it was. They were. It was so menial that Peter was saying, "Never shall you wash my feet." And you know, good old Peter, he's in one ditch. Never shall you wash my feet. And when Jesus says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Up, back on the road, and then over into the other ditch. My hands and my head. No, Peter. I love Peter. He's my inspiration. He really is. You know, have you ever put your foot in your mouth and you go, yep, just like Peter. No price is too high. No such thing as an inconvenience. Whatever God asks of me is dandy with me. Because he adores me. Are you aware of that? And he doesn't just adore us. He adores everybody, every single person out there. Every, no matter how far away from God they are. Every last one of them. And I can do whatever what hardship we have to face, whatever deprivation we have to endure, we can do so because we know that our Father loves us so much that no matter how hard this thing may seem to me right now, it is the best 
possible course for me or he wouldn't be sending me down that path. Amen. And you got to cling to that. you got to know that. Because we, he adores us. And we are the apple of his eye. Closing out on the heart, John 14 and 21 says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose, literally manifest myself to him. You want manifestations of God in your life? Be a doer of the word. You want manifestations of God? You want God to show himself strong in your life? Walk in the word. Walk. Do, be a doer of the word of God. And let your heart, you know, just say, on regular, don't go on a witch hunt. You know, that's, that's not helpful. They say, Lord, we used to sing that song, see if there be any hurtful way in me. And if he points something out, fine. If he doesn't, don't go bug hunting for some. Don't create something. Just say, okay, Lord. You know, because how many, it says, I will convict concerning sin. Right? He'll, he'll show you. He'll show you. Why? Because he has sent his grace to train us. We saw that in Titus 2, 11 and 12. And it will. The Holy Spirit will do those things. Amen. Let's all stand. Those of you watching by web, thank you for joining us. We hope you got something out of this because great and mighty things are already beginning to happen. You know, the Bible talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, we're seeing a lot of the terrible, that's for sure. But I promise you, our Father will not be outdone. And we will see great mercy. We will see great power. We see our Father already through his people and by his spirit drawing people to him i believe there's going to have to be some more shaking before people some people really begin to wake up but that's okay because our god has everything well in hand what i want to encourage you who are watching by web if you do not know jesus of nazareth as your lord and savior there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to miss hell is real Nobody talked about it more than Jesus. And Jesus said that it's very real. And that Paul, the, I mean John the Apostle said, If you have the Son, you have life. But if you don't have the Son, the wrath of God is your future. I want to encourage you to embrace Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. How do you do that? Number one, repent. Say to the Father, I have messed it up. My thinking needs to be changed. I come before you, Lord. I bow before you. I believe with my heart. I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is your son. You have raised him from the dead. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord, not just Savior, Lord. And teach me that I may follow you. The scripture says you will be born again. And be brought out from under the dominion of darkness and the prince of the power of the air who is working in the sons of disobedience and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Christian, don't look at the people around you and say there is no hope for them. It's entirely possible somebody said the same thing about you. I know they did about me. In fact, when I got filled with the Spirit and got on fire for God, 
Some of the guys in my platoon when I was in the army could not believe it. They watched me for weeks expecting to see all of it wash off. And when it never did, they finally came and said, what, what, what happened? Because they knew it was real. And as you pray, you pray for the people around you. Even those who look like they're too far gone. I promise you, God will use you or send another laborer into that harvest. And you're going to see amazing things. Hallelujah. We hope this message has been a great blessing to you and has helped build your faith in Jesus. We encourage you to visit our app, Independence Christian Center, on your cell phone available from the Apple App Store or Android, Google Play. You can also find us on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon, YouTube, and Facebook, again, under Independence Christian Center or at our website, iccfamily, all one word, dot O-R-G, iccfamily.org. Our heart's desire here is to labor with the Lord in building His body. Until next time, may God's very best be yours.